house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. How did you get here? I love you so much. <sighs> What's wrong? That's not your wife. You're dreaming her. She's alive. You found me. I came for you. This is my chance. You don't know what you're in for. Go back. Go back to Earth. You'll die here. You're being manipulated. We are not taking her with us. Are you going to stop me from taking her back? Hello and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast stealing your precious, precious spoons. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with the ghost of my dead wife, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Good morning. Can't uh, make sure if you're real. I'm coming from the far reaches of space. Yeah. You're a, you're an emissary from a very vaporous planet. I thought the 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 design on the planet Solaris is very good because it looks so the fanciest um, Windows ninety five screensaver. <laughs> it knew exactly what we wanted and what you we know wanted the one was that it's like the soothing visuals that would like swirl around. Yes. Oh it yes. That on steroids, but fancier. Where was that? I've never seen that kind of a listicle on, like, a, you know, the best Windows BuzzFeed 95. or Medium. Like, Windows 95 screensavers ranked. Listen, like, I am extremely hireable. If anybody wants me to write that for them, I will do <laughs> Please it. Please hire Chris. He is the expertise that I want. Because, like, it started off so simple, where it was like you were either in a star field or it was um, Windows logos rushing at your face. The bouncing got... ball that would turn into a cube that would turn into a spike. Also, there was the really that... rudimentary ones where you could like write your own message and it would just scroll across of course, the screen of course. in different colors. Like, Everybody got oops. to be very clever and very like yes. And when you were living in like say a dorm situation with multiple roommates, everybody got very clever with that. But like the bouncing ball that turned into the like spiky thing the that weapon? turned into the whatever um i had for so long like there's you said that and i literally like a, a rush ran over me of like weird nostalgia it's really soothing too and like i feel like that's what oh, as we are locked to our technology and all of our like devices what we need again is screensavers to soothe us Screensavers 2021. That's what I want. By yeah. 2021, I want My us all back on screensavers. screensavers. Yes. All, the, 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 the spiky ball and then the one where it was like the laser trapezoid that kept changing shapes. And it was one of those like, um, uh, what you call it, Mobius strips where you could never tell where it would begin and where it would end. Would Like 
I would I was like a cat basically at that <laughs> age where I was just like staring at a screen like forever yes. and just like hypnotized by those things. Like uh, you wonder whether like productivity um went down cuz people were just like mesmerized by their screensavers the whole time. Do you remember the 3D pipe one where it was like different colors of pipe that would be yes. like, built? Yeah, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Of course. Again, somebody hire Chris to do this if only because I need to read this list. Like I need <laughs> I need this list to exist somewhere. I don't know like medium somewhere like like just make it happen there's nostalgia is king right now okay so i was somewhat i think i say this often i was somewhat reluctant to talk about this episode on this pod or to talk about this movie on this podcast and i was trying to sort of like as i was watching the movie i was trying to figure out why because one of the things is i have it in my mind that this movie is like 80 hours long and it's really not it's like 95 minutes long and it flies it does. That's the thing. Well, that's we'll, we'll get into this later on. But like, there was definitely the reputation of this movie that it was slow and ponderous. And it's just like, a, it's not that long, and b, it kind of zips. Like, it's not like action packed or whatever. Like, I guess that's the problem. And like, something had to contribute to that F Cinema score. And po- part of it is the ending, and part of it is we'll talk the... about how this movie was marketed. We'll, we'll right. Exactly. It. But, like, this isn't a long movie, and this is not even a particularly um, ponderous movie. But, like, there's also the sense that I <laughs> I hate delving into my psyche, but here we go. I don't like movies that make me feel dumb. And I don't think this movie in and of itself makes me feel dumb, but, like, the appreciation that it has, where, like, it's the, like... It's the Smarty Smarts choice for, like, the best Soderbergh movie or whatever, and it's, <laughs> um, you know, people really love it, and people, there's a lot of just, like, this movie never got the appreciation, like... We uh, are quickly walking into the situation where I reveal myself as a Smarty Smart. <laughs> you are a Smarty Smart, you're a very, you, like, you are, but, like, but this is the thing, and it's, like, so my, like, inferiority complex kicks in, and I'm just, like, I just like Aaron Brockovich, like... <laughs> no, I'm I not like, going to say like that it's Ocean's better than Aaron Eleven, but I am. But I never f- quite got this movie, and I had seen it twice before, and I liked it better the second time I saw it. But the first time I saw it, I was left really um, sort of cold and nonplussed, and like, um, I didn't. I was frustrated by it. I think it was a movie that frustrated mm-hmm. me, and I think. The fact that it got an F Cinema score was probably not that surprising to me because I was just like, yeah, like, I, it really stymied me. And the second time I saw it, I was like, better, but like, it's still not like my favorite thing. And so it's always sort of been this thing out there to me. It was just like, I don't get Solaris. Am I secretly a dumb dumb? And so I was really reluctant to talk about it for this one, but you were very enthusiastic about it. So I, uh... yeah, I mean, I granted, I had only seen it for the first time this year and I rewatched oh, it wow. for this episode. And like the first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, great masterpiece or near masterpiece. Um, all the people, all the smarty smarts that love this movie are right. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that this movie's really incredible. Like, I knew, I remembered it being marketed really poorly and, like, sold on being something that it's not. And I didn't actually go back and watch the trailer until right before we got on mic. And holy shit. Oh, I wanted to do that and I didn't. 
Tell me about it. Tell me all about it. Okay, so it's fully... I mean, you just watched the movie, right? There's lots of, like, wide shots that are, like, beautiful. You can see the spaceship and stuff. It's pretty much a trailer only in close-ups. It is very much selling it as, like, a romantic angle, like, City of Angels. It's... There's, like... There's a subtitle from the creator of Titanic. Oh, because it's a James Cameron-produced movie. And he was originally going to direct it. That was the whole original plan for it. And it's like, you almost expect a Dido song to start playing. Oh, no! Oh, God. It's truly that. Like, it sells it on this, like, the idea of Solaris being, like, a place to go for a second chance with the love you lost. And, like... It is. I can't imagine, especially because this was a Thanksgiving movie. Yeah. I can't imagine a way to lie to an audience more <laughs> in a way that would piss them off, and probably also like the like smarty smart smart smarts who are into the Tarkovsky movie that would have been curious about what Soderbergh was going to do. Right. You can imagine them being immediately put off by this trailer. Yeah. Um, well, and not only did it open on th- over Thanksgiving, it opened on 2,500 screens. Yeah. Like, it was a massive, wide opening. So, the thing that I noticed as I was sort of preparing for this episode, and I uh, will get back into it later because I sort of made a minigame, but we'll, we'll, we'll discuss that later. But one of the things that I noticed about Soderbergh's career is... He does this thing a lot where he does two movies in a year. He's done mm-hmm. two movies in a year uh, eight times in his career, which is truly wild and, like, not the usual uh, way of things, right? Where It's wild it's, to me that he they started filming this movie the in May and it released in November. Yes, yes, it was. And they and they filmed it on essentially like this Ocean's Eleven sound stages too. Is is from what I uh, read. wild, and or at least a lot of it. And yeah, it was a very very quick film. Started in May, was released in November, and this was the same year that he did Full Frontal. So the thing about Soderbergh's two movie a year thing when he does these is it all almost always sort of reverts to big movie experimental movie mm-hmm. and where like like Aaron Brockovich traffic wasn't quite that but like Aaron Brockovich was commercial movie and traffic even though it ended up making a ton of money because it was a best picture nominee that's sort of that's sort of the more indie experimental whatever right um Solaris was the big movie this year it was the 20th century Fox production November uh Thanksgiving release wide release and then full frontal was the Digital video, experimental, just gonna like gather <laughs> Looks my friends like together. Utter trash. Looks like garbage. I hate that movie. Um, but it, you see it going on where like 2006, he makes The Good German, which is his, you know, Oscar buzzy, which we can't do because it's a freaking nominee. nominee. Um, and then Bubble, which is like truly like this like tiny little experimental movie that nobody saw. Uh, 2009, the sort of bigger movie is the informant and then the experimental movie is the girlfriend experience um 2013 his big movie is actually on television it's behind the candelabra and the experimental movie is side effects 
Although that one ends up being like way more popular than I even remember it being. Mm-hmm. Like I was sort of surprised by that. 2012, it's the closest to sort of level where he does Haywire and Magic Mike. And like both of those movies have both their mainstream and experimental angles to it. Like Haywire is essentially just like a mainstream action thriller but the experimental part of it is just like why don't i cast gina carano in the in the lead role (laughs) and magic mike is like a you know regular sort of like mainstreamy movie except it's just like the experiment is what if i make a male stripper movie like what if uh you know what if that happened and then 2019 it's also tough for me to parse like between high flying bird and the laundromat like i guess high flying bird is so good. The more risky pick, it's really good. Um, but like, it's well, only High risky Flying Bird because... was shot on. Am I crazy, or is High Flying Bird shot on iPhones? I think that's correct. So I guess yeah, I guess that would fit um, that uh, that dichotomy. But like the to bring it back to Solaris, like the fact that in the 2002 double bill that Soderbergh did, the fact that this isn't the experimental movie is wild. The fact that this is supposed to be his big commercial like uh mass audience play is it tells you all you need to know about why it flopped and why it was an F cinema score and all of these things. Um very good movie, but like this is not your late November Oscar buzzy crowd pleaser like 20th Century Fox like I'm really it's certainly I really not a hope... wide release for Thanksgiving no, which I mean it's a studio not. movie and studio movies don't really platform right um but like it would have been a smarter way to do that but like you can also get the sense if you just watch that trailer it's like oh this was made for a studio that had absolutely no idea how to yeah. market this movie whereas like I feel like maybe the more honest way to market this and tell people what they're in for is like because this is ultimately like a psychological drama set in space and yeah maybe it's not even science fiction but like you could make it seem like it's a ghost story you could make it seem yes. like it's uh is something along those lines well it but sets like, itself up like a horror movie like the the actual setup for this movie where it's literally like george clooney gets an invitation to come to a place where something has gone wrong but we're not going to tell you mm-hmm. like that is absolutely the setup for a horror movie and, and it's in the far reaches of space right right and then he shows up like we've seen this thing where like you board a ship and something's happened that was literally the premise for dead calm that was the premise for um isn't that the Isn't premise that the for the premise Event Horizon? Event Horizon? I just yeah, want to say, yes. At the same time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, or it's like Deep Rising. And, One and of those I also, shitty alien right. on a boat movies. And it's the premise for the part of Sunshine where it becomes a horror movie. Like once Sunshine becomes a horror movie, it's that thing where it's just like we're going to. And there's of all the movies that this. Um, reminded me of sunshine is definitely one inception was definitely another one i don't know whether you thought of inception in this at all the the way that the movie is structured and like the editing to the movie that it goes like back and forth in time back and forth in fantasy and reality definitely well and and the fact that i didn't think of inception but that makes sense but the fact that like so much of the movie is about his sort of the way his wife exists in his memory mm-hmm. and that becomes a 
sort of tan tangible entity. Like I can't imagine that as Christopher Nolan is writing and making Inception that he wasn't thinking of Solaris in some way because like the similarities mm-hmm. are really really strong or at least they were for me. Um did before we get to the plot description I just wanted to ask have you seen the Tarkovsky original cuz I have not. I have. I also watched that this year. That is also the th- the I was going to mention this earlier when you said that this movie people feel like is long, slow and boring. That's I the think- long one. That movie is truly so long. It's twice as long as this one. Like well, this is half the length. so, and like that movie is a masterpiece. And it's like, but like it, it has this weird, um, uh, metaphysical uh, aura around it where I truly think it does stop time when you watch that movie because <laughs> when you watch it, you cannot convince me it is only like two hours and forty five minutes long. It is several days worth of movie. It's brilliant, but it is. Um, it's also very different from what Soderbergh is going after. I think it is more closely um, tied to science fiction, whereas I don't really know that the Soderbergh one is. I think it's more of a psychological movie yeah. than like dealing with these like themes of, you know. Well, the, the funniest thing about the – in terms of like – how science fiction it is, is you get to that part at the end where Jeremy Davies literally in the last 15 minutes of the movie decides to lay out all the sci-fi stuff where he's just like, right. this planet has been expanding and you haven't enough fuel and, you know, all this sort of stuff. And like all these things that would be the crux of the plot for it a It would be a set movie. piece for, you know, the average right. movie. Like the fact that like Solaris, the planet, has been expanding ever since they, you know, shot those Higgs boson particles or whatever. And like that would be the crux of a different kind of movie that wasn't up to what this movie is up to. Um, so I reading, I only have not seen the Tarkovsky movie, but I read the plot description and it essentially seems like the same things happen. So like what accounts for, for is it like, cause, but, but what I'm saying is it's not like there was a whole other plot that Soderbergh cut out to make his movie half as long. Is it just that like everything just like takes more time to unfold in that movie? Like what accounts for the time difference? It takes about a half hour to 45 minutes for him to leave earth. Uh huh. Okay. Um, because it's like kind of developing its themes throughout, right. like right. the opening, like meditation, the first act of the movie. And then all of the things that happen once he is in space, it, they take, they do take longer to unfold, but they yeah. like, that's because it's making you think about like what Tarkovsky is like, trying to embody what the thematic of the movie is whereas this just kind of like flies right it's all just about chris kelvin's psychological state it's about grief it's about you know yeah all right well before we get too far into it then why don't we do the 60 second plot description and then we can talk about the movie for real i've got a minute on the clock if you're ready cool all right, so the plot of Solaris. Oh, wait, I should actually go through the uh, the boilerplate for this movie, shouldn't I? Yeah. Uh, we're talking about the 2002 film Solaris, written and directed by Steven Soderbergh, based on the novel by Stanislav Lem and Andrei Tarkovsky's 1972 movie of the same name. Starring... And apparently there was another movie before the Tarkovsky movie. Dang, quite a story. Okay, Solaris, starring... well-mined material. 
George Clooney, Natasha McElhone, Viola Davis, and Jeremy Davies, also very briefly John Cho at the very beginning, if you notice, um, premiered November 29th, 2002 on, as I said, a shit ton of movie screens and made no money. Chris, are you ready for the plot description? Uh, I am ready. All right, 60 seconds on the plot and go. All right, Chris Kelvin is a psychologist. He gets a call from uh, his friend who is in space uh, orbiting Solaris saying, hey, some weird shit's going on. We need you here. Can't tell you what it is till you get here. Uh, Because of that, I guess he decides that it's okay. Meanwhile, Kelvin is uh, grieving over the death of his wife. We eventually find out that she killed herself after they had an altercation because she had an abortion she did not tell him about. Anyway, he gets to the station. uh, Only two remaining surviving members. There is Viola Davis as Dr. Gordon. And then there's Jeremy Davies as uh, uh, the other guy. Um, Anyway... His wife, Rhea, eventually shows up and they're like, surprise, that's what the thing is. Dead people are seem to manifest on this planet. By the way, you can't kill them. They'll come back to life. Uh, Rhea does try to kill herself uh, in the spaceship. And guess what? She comes back to life. Ten seconds. Um, turns out that Jeremy Davies had actually uh, manifested himself on there and killed the real Jeremy Davies. Surprise, the whole time it's been... That's the- Oh, fuck. Yeah. Yeah, and then uh, Viola Davis leaves. You think George Clooney leaves, uh, but he ends up staying with but his he's ghost not. wife. And you don't know if he is dead or alive. And she tells him it's no longer important Doesn't matter. Anymore. Yeah. This is the kind of thing that really messes with my head. Like, we talked about the Inception <laughs> thing and, like, the ending of Inception, which is you'll never really know if you're dreaming or not and that kind of thing. But, like, this kind of thing even more where it's just like because it makes me it starts you know how you start to think of certain really like um like whenever you try and think of just exactly like how small like the vastness of the universe like when you try to actually like conceptualize the vastness of the universe and it starts to feel like your brain might actually break because you can't quite conceive of it and this is the same kind of thing, and it just, like, makes me spiral, where it's just, like, how can you ever know if what you're experiencing is real or a very um, realistic facsimile of, you know, whatever? What if what if your existence is just an elaborate XYZ? Like, Ruse. You know, science thing, alien thing, dream thing, whatever. What if Remember we that? are in a VR simulator? Right. And there are, like, full, like, schools of thought in terms of philosophy that, like, deal with that thing as, like, a legitimate, like, you know, uh, 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 thing. Did you ever see um, Richard Linklater's Waking Life? Yes. Love that movie. I know that's sort of a divisive movie, but there's a part in that movie where it's Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy who are reprising their Before Sunrise characters. And... They're, like, just in bed and chatting, because all of that movie is just, like, chat, 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 which I fucking love. And they start talking about how um, dream, like, essentially, like, dream life, this sort of, like, um, that's basically, this is the part where they take the movie, uh, the title of the movie, sort of. And um, this sort of liminal space between, like, where time in a dream expands, where, and people have experienced this, where, like, you dream, and it's you're only asleep for like say an hour and in the dream it was a day or something like that right where like time expands in a dream and it's always been my because i'm like i'm not a religious person and like you know afterlife whatever like it's not really a thing that i 
feel like I believe in, but I've always clung to this sense of, well, perhaps when you die, you do sort of in the, oh, that's the thing that they talk about. It's just like in the moment of time between when you die and when your brain actually like ceases to function, there's a small sliver of time where you could essentially exist in a dream space forever, right? Mm-hmm. That your concept, your consciousness is alive for just long enough that it could theoretically exist in that space. And then so that would be what the afterlife would present as is just sort of like a essentially whatever like minute long dreamscape that lasts forever. Anyway, um, that's what so like, you're saying the conclusion of the movie is doing. Yes, where it, where what it's saying is actual truth of, you know, are you alive, are you dead, whatever, that doesn't matter. What matters is you are in this space right now, you and me, we are together in this. And whether it's real or not. Or whether it's real or not is fully immaterial. Like How long it will immaterial. last is immaterial. Yes. And... It really depends on the Clooney character. Like, I almost want to, I don't want to see a sequel to Solaris, but I almost, I imagined a sequel to Solaris where, because either the Clooney character is going to be like, excellent, I'm with you, nothing else matters, I'm just going to fully accept whatever this is and whatever. But the flip side of that is, is he neurotic enough to be like, I don't accept this. I've got to know for sure. Like, and then just like drives himself crazy and essentially like ruins, you know, whatever. I realize we've just set up this scenario where time is a fluid construct, but I don't think he's going to have enough time to do that because he is rapidly going to the center of Solaris's uh, screensaver orbit. I'm pretty sure yeah. he's going to burst into flames. But the, yes, right. And, th- and that sort of goes back to what I'm saying. Unless it's just you like think he's that he's this... dead and it's some type of afterlife. See, my interpretation right. of like what the, I do think all of those things you're saying, I think the movie kind of walks up to the door of them and is okay or comfortable with you wanting to interpret more in that way. Whereas I kind of think that this movie is more so profoundly saying simple, generalized things about grief where it's like, Oh, of course. Willfully is putting himself in this situation. Like you can, because of the way that like that final scene plays out, like you can take it in a really rosy way. Whereas I think it's actually like ultimately kind of tragic and sad because he's making this conscious choice based off of his grief to live in something that is not real. or He's bricked himself up in a tomb. He's essentially like buried himself with his dead wife forever. Right. So she's like she's saying those things don't matter anymore or like it doesn't exist anymore because he is choosing to not have a life. And uh, I I guess that's like the trite way of saying it but the movie does uh, do it in a really profound like emotional way that I think is great. But I think if you if you walked up to somebody and were like, where they were like whatever, like a barker on the street, and just like you want to see a movie, and they're like, yeah, what is it? And you're like, it's a meditation on grief, and like everybody runs away from you, right? Like nobody, nobody <laughs> not wants me, to not me. So, I'm like, which well, one is it? I've seen them all. But I think that that phrase, like such and such is a meditation on grief, has almost like lost all meaning because like so many yes. things are that. But like, I don't think this movie is quite even quite so simple as that. Like, it is that. It's definitely a meditation on grief. But it's also like it's got a lot of ideas running through it in terms of uh, the most fascinating for me is 
are does the version of somebody that exists in your head in your memory mm-hmm. in your perceptions or whatever how real is that how um and the fact that the raya that we see in the movie in the spaceship t- this time frame not in the flashbacks um but even in the flashbacks because they're his flashbacks they're his memories that's the whole point but like the raya that we see becomes aware of herself and the fact that she's not real and the fact that she only exists because of what's been extrapolated from his memories by whatever mm-hmm. entity is on Solaris and or is Solaris like that's like I think we're supposed to get the sense that Solaris is an entity not has entities on it right whatever anyway um I but guess the mo- similarly like two steps away from that like as someone who is pathologically incapable of living in the moment um i think (laughs) it is kind of also about you know not just uh how much of your experience of someone uh is real but also how much of like your own life are you living to the fullest in the moment because all of these flashbacks you see of them are these like very intimate like we'll we'll talk about Clooney's butt don't worry we're going to talk about Clooney's butt okay um I made a note of it. It, it. Whether it's them fighting or it's them in bed together, it's these intimate flashbacks that it's like when they come out of that, Rhea saying, basically expressing that like they've been implanted in her brain, but she has no emotional effect of them because she didn't actually live them. Um, right. And there's a certain sense that like Kelvin's regret is because he wasn't really living in the moment of those moments right right well but and 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 also that he starts to really question whether he had sort of allowed his brain his mind to narrow her in his perception while she was alive like the fact that she killed herself is in part because he got I mean, and this is to simplify, but whatever, like she got pregnant. She had an abortion. He flipped out on her. She is like, don't leave me. I won't survive without you. And he is very sort of like callous to that in the moment. And then he leaves. And then the next thing we see, he comes back and she's killed herself. And he's now going through his mind of just like, did, did I ever, did I ever really see her for what she was rather than what, my you know perceptions of her were in that moment yeah. was is now the fact she that she troubled killed herself then. right right and like how much do you ever like step outside of yourself to see somebody or do you essentially does your experience of somebody else narrow them within your own head which all sounds very like cerebral and frou-frou but Soderbergh does a very good job of making it very immediate and visceral with their relationship um in this movie the other thing i thought and of and for a movie that people like to say is boring or tedious i think it's actually really emotional throughout the whole movie too um yeah like, yes i i think She's, that, we'll talk about Clooney's performance but i think it's a pretty raw performance her her function in this movie also almost feels like a a flip mirror version of the character she plays in the truman show where in the truman show She's essentially the only real thing in his artificial life. Mm-hmm. And in this, she's the only, she's the one artificial element in what we assume, well, the Jeremy Davies reveal comes later and we realize not, but we, ins- we assume is everything else is real that he's sort of experiencing. And then she becomes this like inserted agent of, uh, you know, 
not fakeness, but whatever, like artificiality. Um, and it's interesting, the inversion of that, I thought, because in both of them, she's uh, both sort of like symbol and savior, which mm-hmm. is interesting. And this movie really grapples with that. Like, that's what I really like about this. But uh, you wanted to like, all right, so let's let's talk about Clooney now, because then we can uh, we can branch off and talk about the other characters. I after. think this is my favorite George Clooney performance. It's a real performance. Like it He's is amazing. There's it's a lot like of Clooney performances done. No, it's not like anything else is done. There's a lot of Clooney performances that rely on his natural charisma, which I think is incredibly legitimate. You know, I'm a very big fan of like a movie star performance, but this is very different than that. This is really calling on him to be an actor and sort of that like classic sense of it. Right. Well, the Clooney charisma is so specific too, to the point where it's like, even in some of his best performances, like Michael Clayton, he has like his bag of tricks that he does and relies on. And none of those, he can't use any of those in this movie, or at least doesn't or is directed to not. Um, But it feels very atypical, especially of early 2000s George Clooney. Right. Well, this is a very so. This is I. I wanted to talk about this, um, and we, <laughs> I did want to talk about this in the context of like the nudity, but like we'll 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 get to that <laughs> from another angle. But so the thing with Clooney's career at this point is it's still an incredibly young career, especially as a movie star. Right. Mm-hmm. Where like the thing about Clooney's career is he was this like journeyman TV guy forever, right? Where he was on Roseanne and he was on, um, not only was he at like before even ER, like he was on another show called ER, like another medical show called ER, but he would show up on like the facts of life for a bit. And he would show up for a stint on Roseanne. There's an episode of golden girls where he like, just as there's, there's an episode of murder. She wrote where all of a sudden it's just like, Hey, it's George Clooney. Um, I remember him first from the NBC Saturday night soap sisters starring seal Ward and Susie Kurtz and other people. Um, Ashley Judd was also on that show, but he, was seal awards uh boyfriend he was a cop he was seal awards boyfriend and he was very charming and it was it was the the clooney thing right where he was just like it was that same danny ocean sort of like winky charmy like you could absolutely see why she like fell for him very quickly and he's a cop and he gets killed in a car bomb by some mobster he was going after or whatever and it was very sad and tragic and you felt awful for seal award and that might have been the year that she won the emmy and then, like, the next year, because you know how sometimes, like, a network will take a guest star from another show of its that it has and then make them the star of one of their new shows because yeah. like, it was almost like a test run. So, like, the next year was ER. And then ER obviously blows up huge. It's just, like, the biggest show on television. That and Friends both premiered in the same year. And it was, like, this tandem explosion and it was like Clooney mania where the haircut was a thing he was like the hottest guy on television he was everybody's sort of like pretend boyfriend the whole thing and so from that point everybody was almost immediately just like well now he's got to become a movie star like this is the he's Mm -hmm. too handsome like they had the Cary Grant comparisons were like through the roof everybody was just like well now he has to become a movie star but that happened in sort of like fits and starts where he's like he's in from dusk till dawn playing a very atypical like very different than the uh clooney image 
but I think he's really good in that, and I think that's a really good movie. But like One Fine Day is the really the first movie that just that tries to the Cary like, Grantness do the Cary Grantness right where it's him and Michelle Pfeiffer, and they're actually really good. I think that's a really underrated romantic comedy. Nobody really talks about it anymore, but I think they're both really good. And he's sort of he's the cad, and he's gonna is he gonna be tamed and whatever. Uh, then Batman happens. A setback. <laughs> the same um, summer as The Peacemaker. Right. And The Peacemaker is one of these sort of, you know, we're going to... So now it's like, well, he's a handsome leading man in Hollywood. Of course, he's going to be an action movie star where he's in a superhero movie. And then he's also in this, like, action thriller, whatever, him and Kidman. And that's, again, a movie that has been, you know, totally forgotten. And then he starts doing, from there... I, whether this is like an active career choice on his part, how much, you know, choice he had in his roles at the state of his career is uncertain, but like he makes out of sight with Soderbergh. He makes three kings with, um, David O. Russell famously punches him on the set of three kings. Fun, uh, good and fun, uh, backstage story. But he's, um, within this context of him sort of getting these movie star roles because those again he's still the lead in all of those and whatever but like mm-hmm. they're quirky auteur driven interesting well-reviewed movies so like his his career's on the way up he just still does stuff like the perfect storm which is very mainstream summer blockbuster but like that's a really well-reviewed movie and people really liked him in it but Small it's again it's in things like spy kids and the thin red line right right and then but then he's still making like he's you know the Coens, oh brother, where art thou? Where art thou? Where it's like it's not only a Coens movie, but it's like maybe the most stylized Coens movie of that era. Certainly, mm-hmm. um, he wins the Globe for that, and then uh, like starts the, his Oscar narrative because he was considered one of the big snubs that morning on nomination morning because he wasn't nominated, even though he won the Globe. Right, and then immediately after Soderbergh's big Oscar two nominations and then he wins best director and like in julia roberts's acceptance speech she literally says like tomorrow i'm gonna start work on the new my new movie with soderbergh and it's oceans 11 and so oceans 11 really to me crystallizes the george clooney cinematic persona right we're like mm-hmm. no matter what else he does it's in comparison to how alike or unlike uh danny ocean it is right uh, and for good reason. He's phenomenal in that movie. That is an incredible, like, I think it's, you can't call Ocean's Eleven underrated now, but at the time, I think it was. Because at the time, it was like, oh, this is Soderbergh making a play for a purely commercial movie after getting two Oscar nominations or whatever. And it was yeah, sort of seen as like... Yeah, I mean, it was definitely like, reduced to, like, fun prestige, but not really taken as seriously for the craftsmanship of that movie. And it's such a perfect movie. I love it so much. And then, you're right, you mentioned he shows up in Spy Kids, uh, also in 2001. And then 2002, it's like, you, we talk about those level-up years, where he makes his directorial debut with Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. So all of it, all, like, that old cliche of what I, what I really want to direct. So, like, really he does, like, step into the classic A-list leading man thing of, like, now I'm going to be acting and directing. Uh, Confessions of a Dangerous Mind doesn't really do too much, even though I think it's a really good movie, and I think Sam Rockwell is excellent in it. Well, and I it's think a Charlie it gets Kaufman so script, which is exactly like, that's it. It's that 
people forget that George Clooney directed that movie at the time it was it felt more attached to Charlie Kaufman and I think right. that's a Charlie Kaufman script that had sat around for a while for a very long time yes yeah. yes yes because by this point Kaufman had already had then gone on to make to write being John Malkovich and then in 2002 that same year adaptation was coming out so like yeah this was an old script mm-hmm. that was but like knowing what we know now of the Clooney directorial career which I have said before i think is a big disappointment and i don't i can't remember the last time i really liked a george clooney directed movie but doesn't it seem from a 2020 perspective wild the idea of george clooney directing a charlie kaufman script uh i mean that will never happen again (laughs) no absolutely not absolutely even though like it worked so well back then i kind of wonder because that was um a late miramax product i almost wonder if it was george clooney wanted to direct yeah. Harvey Weinstein had that script sitting around and somehow got George Clooney attached. I don't know. It's very possible, although it's I very do remember... Curious. Like, there's a story there that we don't know about how George yeah. Clooney came to direct that. Very atypical for the rest of his filmography movie. Right. But I think, so in 2002, not only he does he have this, you know, directorial debut of his, but now he's set to star in the next Soderbergh movie, uh, releasing in November from a major studio, Solaris. And this was the first time, you know, he won the Globe for Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? But I don't know if a year ahead of that, that people would have been like George Clooney, best actor contender, like right. in the long view, right? Whereas like Solaris is the first time where a project a project gets put on the schedule and announced and everybody is like, oh, we're looking at that now as a George Clooney Oscar prospect, like let's say a year ahead of time, right? Mm-hmm. And so this is the first time where like Oscar buzzy expectations are on him. And what's wild is, as you said, like it's maybe his best performance. I don't I might put Michael Clayton ahead of it. I think he's I'm such a huge Michael Clayton person. I mean everything um, about my, Michael Clayton is on fire. Um it's at least one of his best performances. And so the fact that, like, it's not like he disappointed in this movie. It's that the movie was so thoroughly not what people wanted slash expected. So absolutely uh, mishandled. Um, but we should all, we should, uh, maybe this is a good uh, pivot point because, like, their, uh, their ascension is so tied, like, it's as much of a Soderbergh thing as it was a Clooney thing. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yes. Because, yes. like, uh, yes, at this point and up until the, uh, maybe, I mean, O Brother kind of cemented it rather than it was already happening for him. Uh, uh, like, Clooney was an A-list actor that is absolutely the type of person that you're going to be looking to for their first Oscar role, right? Uh, at that time. But, like, and we just talked about this on the Little Gold Men podcast. Go back and listen to that episode. Um, with the 2000 Oscar race, the like ascension of Steven Soderbergh with his two Oscar movies, both nominated for director, both nominated for best picture, um, that it's like Ocean's Eleven was the next movie that, and it was like treated as fluff, right? So like, yeah, the expectation of a major director returning to the Oscar race was also on this movie. Yeah, right. Not but, just and, the Clooney thing. Right. But and and the sort of dichotomy of that is is Soderbergh already had his Oscar, had right. his Oscar year, his Oscar moment, and then he won. And Clooney was still sort of ascending to that. Like he hadn't gotten to that part yet. 
And so it's interesting to see, right, these expectations heaped on these guys from two, like, really sort of opposite angles. And it's it's kind of a bummer to think of all of that hype and that it was judged to be empty hype, right? It was judged to be mm-hmm. lacking and it, like, totally bottomed out, where at the same time, it's one of his best performances and it's one of uh, Soderbergh's most, like critically respected and beloved movies like it's just it's not a failure in any respect if the only way that it was a failure is well audience reception and yeah uh, just like the uh, way it was sold to audiences absolutely killed the movie and like yeah we can talk about the f cinema score we've done f cinema scores when we did mother and did we have another f cinema score Maybe, but it was definitely Mother... Oh, it was Dr. T and the Women. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a that's a deserving cinema score. Yes. Um, but, like, we've talked about how, when that happens, it's all about marketing and people's yes. expectations of what the movie is supposed to be. And I think exactly. if you watch the trailer and then watch this movie, that makes absolute sense to me. It does. It does make sense. Um, to... to Pivot to the butt for a second. So <laughs> let's let's please. Uh, my notes. My very first note in this movie is just Clooney butt with an exclamation point. And not only because we, not only see, you see it a couple of times, and the first time where it's one of those things where it's like it's long shot. It starts off in shadow. They're sort of like you know they're standing up and and uh, making out and whatever, and they're naked, and you know that they're naked. But it's one of those things where it's like. He's an A-list movie star. We're going to see this in shadow and it's going to be a long shot and we're we're going to like see the side of him maybe or whatever. But like no, they fully pivot around and it's a whole butt and it like lingers on it and it's like lit so where you like can clearly see it. And it's it was so and again, I've seen this movie before. But still, it's such a surprise because and then you end, you'd see his butt again later when they're like lying face down on the bed or whatever. And it's it's comes as such a surprise not only because it's like you know a-list movie star butt which is rarer than you would think but also the kind of sex symbol that george clooney has always been from like er on forward right has been this we mentioned the Cary grant thing but like I always feel like George Clooney has been like the sex symbol in clothes, like the sex yeah, symbol like, in a tuxedo. George the sex Clooney symbol doesn't really in... take off a shirt even. Right. Like there are different kinds of like hot movie stars where it's just like your, you know, your current like Chris Evans is Chris Hemsworth or whatever. Like these are hot, buff, shirtless like celebrities. Like nudity on them is not fully like out of the realm of like what their image is right brad pitt gets famous through thelma and louise where he's not you don't see all of him but like you see enough of him where it's just like you know the the nakedness is sort of like part of that whole package whereas like that was never the clooney thing clooney was always the one who they were you know you imagine like george clooney hotness and it's just like oh he's wearing a tux right he's like he's my you know date to a gala like that kind of a thing and this movie is really fleshy with him which i think is really effective in terms of what you know we're portraying in the movie in terms yeah, of just the like level really of getting vulnerability to Yes, the vulnerability and the sort of like the the connection that he and and Rhea have. But 
it's shocking. It's like absolutely shocking. Is this the only movie we've ever seen Clooney butt in? Uh, Syriana. Well, that's why he won the Oscar. There we go. Right. He got um, tortured. The bravery. Naked. Well, the bravery of. <laughs> you brought up the. Um, you brought up uh, like Christopher Nolan in comparison, and like I do think that like the level of horniness in this movie, and like the level oh, yeah. of like crying in this movie, is like kind of what transcends the like perception of the Nolanisms of these type of movies, where it's like. They're crotchless. They have no real human emotion. And, all like, right, this all right. Is like, not true of that movie. Okay. Um, I'm not gonna tra- uh, detour into bashing Christopher Nolan. Um, uh, neither but, am I. But like his movies are uh, not very horny. No, he's not a horny director. He doesn't make horny movies for sure. Um, those movies. I don't deal think with a little. Bit I and, and to just sort of clarify, I don't think Solaris is a Christopher Nolan esque movie. But like in just in terms of where this plot goes, like the the sort of the, sure. the parts of Solaris that are cerebral and that are, um, you know, sort of setting up this dynamic. Like I do it's think a that conceivable dynamic is prototype for the kind of like storytelling machinations that Christopher Nolan has done. Yeah, totally, totally. Um. I was surprised how much I bought into the chemistry between Clooney and McElhone this time, because I recall not thinking that before. And maybe I I just, whatever, like this viewing really sort of like sold me on it. You do kind of have to like wrap your head around how much of a real person and a construct she is. So like, I think that's something that's rewarded by multiple viewings. Well, not only that, but the movie never plays a gotcha with that right like right. he knows she's artificial from the first moment that she shows up right he knows mm-hmm. that she's you know she's obviously she's dead and the audience knows like right away that she's not real right so we're all on the same page and we're all seeing through this facade and what this does this is almost like an inversion of you know, stories where the gotcha would be that she's dead, that she's not alive. This movie does have a gotcha again with Jeremy Davies, but we'll get into that. Um, but the fact that we're sort of playing this dynamic backwards, right? Where he knows that she's fake from the outset and the journey of the movie is him slowly like giving into the fact that like maybe that doesn't matter so much to him. And that's really cool like that's just like just in terms of like oh this is a thing you don't really see very often in a movie i thought that was really cool yeah let's talk about the other characters on this spaceship so he davis is so good in this movie he's so (laughs) fucking good in this movie this was the same year as far from heaven she's also in that film and it was a and is this also the Antoine Fisher year? This was like a big yes. breakthrough year for Viola. This was the first year I remember hearing the name Viola Davis. Like I, cause I wasn't really attuned to Broadway as much at this time. She had already won a Tony award in like the late nineties for King Hadley. Thank you. Um, and so like, she was definitely like a known entity on Broadway, but not the case here uh in in the film realm and this was definitely a year where all of a sudden she's like the character actress to watch because she's in these mm-hmm. three movies and she shows up really well this is the best of the three of them this is the the performance this this time around watching this movie 
I was like, oh, well, like, she's absolutely a supporting actress nominee for me. Like, she's Maybe so... one of the, like, uh, biggest bummers of this movie doing so horribly is, like, her, like, real, like, major breakthrough could have come sooner. It could have come movie. a lot sooner. We could have if had so many it. more Viola Davis movies if we had just uh, It wouldn't have had to be this. the help. Right, right. Um, well, I mean, doubt is the one that really like that that did the trick. But yes, um, this could have been again. This is six years before this. We could have been on such an accelerated Violet Davis timeline by this point. It's, <laughs> but like she's absolutely for me the audience surrogate because she's the one in this movie mm-hmm. being like, "Are you out of your mind? She's not real. She's clearly not real. Can you please get on the level with me about this and help me figure this out?" She's so practical. She's so. Um, and yet, while being the practical one, the sort of the the scientist, the serious one who's like, let's all cut the shit. I know that she I love the part where she's just like, you wouldn't be feeling this way if she was ugly. So they didn't make her ugly. You wouldn't have been feeling this way. X, Y, Z. Like, I love that she like cuts absolutely through to the center of all of this stuff. Right. Where it's just like you are falling for this planet's machinations towards you and you are doing so willingly can you please cut this shit out and yet while she's all doing that while she's being the rational one you see the hauntedness in her eyes totally where you know that she's also been confronted with something we never find out what it is what showed up to her right only Mm -hmm. that she was able to kill it with this higgs boson particle beam thing um but we know that whatever it was, it has haunted her, and it's there in her eyes. Like, it does not ever leave her face what she's been through in this. The first time we see her, she's, like, locked in her room, and she won't open the door because she's so, like, distrusting of everything. And she manages to keep, like, both of those balls in the air the entire time, and it's so impressive. Yes. I agree. I don't know. I wanted I wanted to give you space <laughs> to talk about. It. I didn't want to I mean, filibuster I, I don't know what else Davis. I could say on top of everything you have said um other than yeah, it's a she's so good in this movie in a role that doesn't feel like the type of thing we get to see her do today and like mostly that's because she's doing lead roles, you know. But right. um yeah, I was kind of bummed out, especially watching it this time, where I was like, you know, this could have really led to something if people hadn't trashed this movie so much. Or it could have, uh, she could have had something before, you know. It's not the same, it it's not the same role exactly, but it reminded me of, the role of hers that it most reminded me of was, what was the Michael Mann movie that nobody saw that like, uh, made like $2? Uh, Black Hat. Yes, She's, again, great in Black Hat. And it's, again, she's sort of like, she's the functionary in that, right? Where she's, uh, she's like a federal agent, right? That's mm-hmm. the thing? Yeah. But again, but it's one of those things where it's just like, she brings so much to that role. Much more than even that it deserves in that movie. And this sort of reminded me of that. It was just like, in a lesser movie, she's just like the sounding board. She's, you know, the the scold in this movie. And she's really not that at all. To me, in my viewing of it, she's the hero of the movie. Because she's the one, like, you could absolutely see a different version of this movie. Where she's like the final girl, right? If The, the mm-hmm. horror movie version of this, she's the final girl. And she's now having to deal with this new arrival on the ship who has now 
gone off the deep end and will not accept the fact that this woman here is not his real wife. And, ugh, she's just so good. And then we have Jeremy Davies, who by this point... Jeremy Davies. (laughs) Well, this is... Okay, so this was the note that I wrote down. Um, I said... what is the chicken or the egg of every Jeremy Davies character? Like, does Jeremy Davies get cast because the character on the page is squirrely and speaks in these sort of like haltingly, like, he has that James very. appears squirrely, slight, a Jeremy Davies type. This is what I'm saying. Like, does that like go out to then the casting and just be like, we need to get Jeremy Davies or we can't make this movie because he talks. Like Jeremy Davies, like it's uh, it- there. I am somehow there. I am, and I uh, couldn't tell you, couldn't tell you how I'm there or who I am or what's going on. But before I can get to that, what's this over here coming at? What are you trying to do? Oh, I see you trying to kill me. Yeah, confuse me. I'll tell you about some confusing. How about bingo? There you are. And whoop, there's my welcoming committee. You dropped your knife and it's a good night. And oh, by the way, uh, after all that, I find out this, uh, whoever just get my first good look at it and it happens to be, I survived the first 30 seconds of this life, whatever you want to call it, by killing someone. And oh, ah, by killing someone who happens to be me. There's that when they find out it's almost it is funny and I think it's intentionally funny when they find out that he's not a real person that he's a manifestation from Solaris too and he had killed the real person version of him they come to confront him and he's like the most Jeremy Davies has he's ever been in the entire movie where he's just like talking in these stop starting things that way he talks where he's just like and i was like and it's like wow you know and uh uh the th- the thing the particle <laughs> physics i'm now and understanding like, where i get my speech patterns from <laughs> me too kind of right like I, if you've ever been annoyed at the way i can't get a fucking sentence out it's this and it's yep. every character in my so-called life like it was uh did you watch my so-called life when you were younger yes there's the part where there was that episode where it was like focused on brian and there was this like weird little like thread there where like brian and ricky were like each other's confidants for like that one episode and brian's trying to say something to ricky and he's doing that thing where it's just like hey ricky oh hi is um is rayanne i mean did she like is angela like i mean the thing is hey brian could you like pick a sentence and go with it and it's just like oh my god that's like that's the that's been the bane of my existence anyway Jeremy Davies. So is is it that that role exists on the page and you can only get Jeremy Davies for it? Or does Jeremy Davies get cast in a role and then completely remake the entire dialogue patterns to match his very specific <laughs> delivery? Which I could see people getting really annoyed by and because it's so specifically stylized and also intentionally um, a little off-putting, especially in this. I think it's intentionally off-putting. Um I find myself more often than not delighted by it. Like there's something about his squirreliness that I find so appealing where other actors, I wouldn't. So there's something about him in this movie, in this role where it's like, no, not 
this Jeremy Davies, the other Jeremy Davies, where it's like, it feels very much like the movie's about like your concept of reality. Is a person real or not? Where it's like uh, Jeremy Davies just exists on his own plane of existence, manifested by the environment (laughs) around us. He's always this, I almost feel like, because he was like this on Lost too, but it was a more sort of focused version of it a little bit like whatever it was it was jeremy davies on whatever dosage of ritalin gets him to (laughs) something close to a baseline but it's that too but like i'm just always so happy to see him show up and i'm always just like kind of rooting for him even in this where it's like you know you know he's the bad guy. Like it's even in the beginning of the movie, you don't know he's the bad guy, and he's not like it's he's not the bad guy. That's really not where this works. Again, the horror movie version of this movie, he is the bad guy, but um, he's the the subterfuge in this movie, and it made me think of a movie like. Did you think of Sphere at all this while you were watching this movie? Uh, no, but uh, Sphere is wild. <laughs> Sphere's another movie where an alien entity shows up and begins to alter the consciousness of everybody who comes into contact with it, right? Where if you come into contact with the sphere, you start seeing things that aren't there, you start behaving in a way that is um, sort of destructive to your mission and all of this stuff. And I don't know, like Sphere obviously is like the inferior version of this, but also Sphere is absolutely a fun, bad movie. And it should be it's one of those movies that should be on television all the time because i don't know it's very it's a good time i enjoy watching it sphere sphere <laughs> what else did we want to talk about what what else is on your mind for solaris uh mostly just the 2002 oscar year this is the year i was radicalized i too was radicalized by the hours it's such a great Oscar year. Again, the famous thing about the 2002 Oscars is that it all it's all December. <laughs> like yeah. all the best picture nominees, everything all December and like all the week of Christmas. Yes. Yeah, we're like the hours was the like early movie cuz it opened in early December, but like everything else was Gangs of New York, Chicago and Lord of the Rings of the Pianist. Lord of the Rings. and the, Yes, right. All like like very late December. And so I'm just trying to think of like where Solaris might have fit with this. Because I feel like if Solaris is appreciated in the way that we maybe feel like it should have been, it's a picture contender, director contender, actor contender, and supporting actress contender. Like and that's in terms of just like me. Like that's my... Right, uh, big ones. Even though aside it's like, it's... from like below the line things, like Cliff Martinez's score is incredible and has absolutely been, if not ripped off, reused for like other trailers, television. Has Cliff Martinez ever been nominated for an Oscar? Because he's incredibly underrated in that regard. I actually don't think so, but I will look that up. Cliff Martinez was that uh, when Drive came out, and Drive had that incredible hybrid soundtrack where it was. His score and also all those um pretty sure it was deemed songs. ineligible because of it. Right. And it was it was one of those things where I remember I wrote, I think it was for NPR at the time. Um, I wrote about how the Oscars needed to evolve and have some kind of like hybrid 
adaptation score like they used to category right but but in a different way back then adaptation score had a lot to do with like musicals yes Yes. whereas i feel like the modern version of this is like a score that manages to incorporate pre-existing songs which is what drive did um but i thought there like no movie that year had as great a musical impact to me at least as drive and i think that's cliff martinez and cliff his martinez career... like can single-handedly make the neon demon like very compelling oh yeah like sorry i want to bring up his filmography though because um if our listeners aren't super familiar with him i want to familiarize because he's done the nicholas winding refn movies right um he has spring breakers contagion so he's worked with soderbergh he also did traffic you know what's a super underrated uh cliff martinez score that you wouldn't expect to be like a score uh forward movie his score go listen to his score for game night the uh jason bateman rachel mcadams movie game night is fucking amazing and it's again it's like a light comedy so you wouldn't expect that to be like a score kind of a movie but like go out and listen to it it's super super freaking fantastic like i absolutely loved it there's also a certain level of like space movies got uh more appreciated for their craft in the years to come uh yeah. so it's like you could imagine like an art direction nomination for this movie and isn't it like milena Canonero did the costumes for this I mean, the spacesuits are kind of cool looking. Good spacesuits, beautiful spacesuits. Yes. Um, So, try like I feel like you could easily see Clooney sort of wedging his way into this best actor field because it's it's one of those ones where like it's very top heavy and then the bottom gets a little squishy. Where this was the one where famously Adrian Brody won on what we all sort of assume is a three-way split vote between mm-hmm. Daniel Day-Lewis for Gangs of New York, Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt, and Adrian Brody then for The Pianist. Because it was that Nicholson won the Globe and Daniel Day-Lewis won the SAG, right? Is how and that they worked? both tied Critics' Choice. And they both tied Critics' Choice. So like, clearly this was an incredibly close vote. I think if we ever saw the vote totals on this, I think we would see that borne out. And then the other two nominees were Nicolas Cage for Adaptation, who he's freaking fantastic. Nicolas Cage should have two Oscars. One of my my favorite performances of his, maybe my favorite performance of his, he plays both Charlie and Donald Kaufman, and he's fantastic. And then the one that I still have never seen, which is um, the Philip Noyce movie, The Quiet American, which starred Michael Caine. Noyce. And Kane had won the Oscar only a few years before for Cider House Rules. We were in a very sort of like Michael Kane forward place. But like every time I think of every time I think of a best actor contender in 2002 that I would put into that category, it's always very easy to sort of like slot out Michael Kane. And part of it is that I haven't seen the movie. And if I had, maybe I would have a harder time sort of excising him from that. But I'm trying to, I'm looking at my own. Because I brought up my 2002 ballot, my nerd list that I have. Um, <laughs> my nominees that year, Daniel Day-Lewis for Gangs of New York. For as much as I was annoyed by that movie, I think he's really great. I love Jack Nicholson in About Schmidt. I love Nicolas Cage in Adaptation. I'd put Clooney in there, and then I'd also put uh, Hugh Grant for About a Boy in there. One of uh, my favorite performances of his. And that one got a Globe nomination and was sort of on the outskirts of that Oscar conversation that year. 
I think uh, Gangs of New York didn't really help that. Weirdly enough, like, it obviously, uh, Catch Me If You Can is the one that you would rally around, and he's not that good in uh, Gangs of New York. So it's like, it should have helped, like, bolster the Catch Me If You Can performance, but it didn't. Oh, you're talking about DiCaprio. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, DiCaprio's not on my list, although he should be, because he's great in Catch Me If You Can. Um, He's on my list. I can give you my list. Yeah, give me give me your list. All right, Nicolas Cage for Adaptation, George Clooney for Solaris, DiCaprio for Catch Me If You Can, Hugh Grant for About a Boy, and Jack Nicholson for About Schmidt. Yeah. I think other contenders that year I would have floated around. I think Sam Rockwell is great in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind. He's a lot of fun. Yes. Um, that was the year of Roger Dodger, where I thought Campbell Scott was quite good. Didn't he win, like, NBR Probably or something my sixth like that? Place. Yeah, he won. Uh, he might have won national board of review i think you're right i think that's right that was the big ryan gosling breakthrough performance in the believer that year that was also um yeah the believer is unsettling like it's it's sort of similar to american history x in the sort of um look at this clean cut American boy. And now he's a skinhead Nazi. Although the thing about the believer was that he was Jewish, right? He was Jewish. And then he became a skinhead. Yes. I think that's the hook of that movie. Um, director that year, I was trying to figure out where I would slot Soderbergh in, in terms of best director. That is a intimidating to me, best director field, right? Where the yeah. nominees yeah, that year, like it should be 10 wide. Like, you right. have to kind of kill your darlings on this one for me personally. Right. The actual Oscar uh, category was notorious because this was the year that Roman Polanski won in absentia for um, the pianist. But uh, uh, that was, th- that was, I think the first time that I remember everybody being like, we got to get Martin Scorsese an Oscar. Let's make mm-hmm. this happen. And it didn't happen because gangs of New York was um, not received. It was received enough for 10 nominations, but it was not well received enough not for, for to win any win. of them. Right. Daldry's nominated for the hours, my personal heart and soul. Um, Pedro Almodovar gets the lone director nomination that year for Talk to Her. And wins the screenplay award because he became kind of this rallying point because Spain didn't submit Talk to Her for yes. their foreign language contender. Yeah. That's right. That's right. What did win foreign? Oh, that was the year that Nowhere in Africa won. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that would have been a really interesting uh, uh, foreign language film field if if Talk to Her had managed to make it. And also, that was the year that, like, The Crime of Father Amaro was Mexico's nomination and not uh, Itumama Tambien, although I'm not was sure... Was that what... it? I'm pretty sure Itumama Tambien was the submission the year before. Oh, and then it got released in American theaters in 2002. Yeah, so it got its nomination because it was technically a U.S. 2002 release. Right, because that also got a screenplay nomination, Itumama Tambien. One of my favorite little tidbits, because it's definitely not what you would imagine an oscar movie would be even though it is excellent Incredible. so what's your best director list for 2002 uh my best director lineup again i'm going off of 2002 u.s release dates uh pedro motivar for talk to her yes alfonso Cuarón for you to mama Tempien. very good michael hanukkah for the piano teacher Oh, a movie I've still never seen. Uh, Todd Haynes for Far From Heaven and Spike Jones for Adaptation. Oh, that's a fantastic one. I should have Spike Jones on my long list, um, even though I don't. And he's fantastic. Okay, so mine is uh, in 
I don't know what order might, so I'll just do alphabetical order. Quaron for Ichimama Tambien, Stephen Daldry for The Hours, Todd Haynes for Far From Heaven, um, Peter Jackson for Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and Spike Lee for 25th Hour. Which, which I another, still need to see. Oh, it's so good. So like, yeah, yeah you look I know at the, I'm going to love it when I see it. You look at the runners up that year and it's like Spielberg for Catch Me If You Can and Minority Report in the same year. Like that is just a supremely underrated double. Like you talk about, you know, two movies in a year. That's fantastic. Soderbergh for Solaris. Report doesn't work for me as much as it does for everybody else. I don't know why I don't, I can never get to loving that movie. It's so, oh, I think the action in it is so good. I think the world building is so good. Um, I really loved Road to Perdition. I know that was a very divisive movie that year. It was not a movie that worked for everybody, but I I remember liking it a lot, but I can't remember anything about the movie whatsoever so it's like not on my current ballot one of my very favorite thomas newman scores and i like a lot of thomas newman scores it is great um so sam mandy's directed that uh paul thomas anderson was punch drunk love that year which i remember respecting if not loving but like it's a really fantastic year so there's that and then supporting actress which is a great category at the oscars that year if one that really um sort of hopscotches around the uh lead slash supporting designations that was the year that Catherine zeta jones gets presented the oscar by the now late sean connery uh Catherine. um beats out her chicago co-star queen latifah who's awesome julianne moore in the hours who is a lead like that is a movie with three leads i think you know we've all learned to accept that um Meryl Streep in Adaptation, who was nominated or what, campaigned as lead for the SAG, and that's why she didn't get the SAG nomination. Is that how that went? That I don't know. Something was weird with her and the lead des- designation. I do think she's supporting an adaptation, but um, a lot of that movie is kind of hers. Like, it's it's a little but surprising. But then when, when it's not, it. like, she doesn't exist. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Um, and then the no- the nomination that I always forget about, even though I do think she's quite good, is Kathy Bates for About Schmidt, which sort of disappointingly got narrowed down at the time to, well, she does a nude scene in a hot tub, and isn't that brave? Right. And I hate that line of, like, I hate that line of, uh, almost more than too. I hate the, isn't it brave for a straight man to play a gay man in a movie? I almost hate the, isn't it brave for a non-skinny actress to be naked in a movie? Like, it really makes me mad. Yeah, anyway. It's my supporting actresses that year, and again, I could probably do with, you know, combing the films a little more, but I have Streep for Adaptation, Catherine Zeta-Jones for Chicago, Michelle Pfeiffer for White Oleander, a movie uh, we should do at some point, because that's a we'll get great to it. We'll one. Get to it. Uh, Viola for Solaris, who's so good. And then I'm on the fence whether I want it to be Tony Collette for About a Boy slash The Hours or Samantha Morton for Minority Report, who did get a surprising amount of buzz for that performance, I remember. I don't know how she close did. she got, but um, but she definitely was like mentioned a lot. It definitely helped her. My, the Minority Report definitely helped her towards that In America nomination. Mm-hmm. The next year. You can't I think that's right. me it didn't. Uh, no, I think you're right. So what were yours? My my ballot would be Tony Collette for About a Boy, Violet Davis for Solaris, Lupe Ontiveros for Real Women Have Curves. Very good. 
Meryl Streep for Adaptation, Catherine Zeta-Jones for Chicago. My sixth place, purely because it is one of the funniest scenes in cinema, would be Andrea Martin for My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Yes! The biopsy scene. The biopsy monologue is genuinely one of the finest moments in all of cinema. Okay. All my life, I had a lump at the back of my neck right here. Always a lump. Then I start the menopause and the lump got bigger from the hormones it started to grow. So I go to the doctor and he did the biopsy. And inside the lump, he found teeth and a spinal column. Yes, inside the lump was my twin. And like that alone is nomination worthy. So my my big fat Greek wedding, which is sort of like a um, a movie geek slash movie critic sort of like punching bag. Nobody could understand why that movie was such a success. And I'm not here to tell you it's a great movie, but I will tell you it's a a watchable movie and b i know this because my family was obsessed with it now there is no greek anywhere near my family like there's no, that can't explain it but like my parents adored that movie and my little sister my heart and soul my little sister who was at the time like 10 10 or 11 years old um would watch it with my parents and loved it. And she would, she, mem- she memorized the, the Andrew Martin biopsy scene, the monologue and would like recite it on command. You know how sometimes parents are just like, do that thing you do, do that funny, do that funny monologue. And so she would like, we would have like people over and we would be like, Hey, do the thing, do the, you know, do the whatever. And, uh, and she would, and it would be like, like word perfect every single time and she the is surreality like, of uh having a 10 year old do that monologue so i always think right exactly talking about like you know when i had the uh, it was my tweet it was so so like every time i think of that a plus andrea martin monologue for my big fat greek wedding i do think of that um there's a lot of other uh options that you could do i almost put annie Girardot from the piano teacher on there you could do patricia clarkson from far from heaven Queen Latifah is absolutely a worthy nominee. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember Edie Falco getting critic Critics Award attention for Sunshine State, the John Sayles movie Sunshine State, if you recall. Sure. Yeah. Um, which was like, this was in the thick of like Sopranos mania. So like it was very much the, um, you know, oh, is this Edie Falco, you know, sort of crossing over and it's now going to get movie attention. I also really liked Drew Barrymore in Confessions of a Dangerous Mind that year. It's 2002 is a like just wildly rich in terms of that also is uh, the year of Lovely and Amazing, the Nicole Hoffs in her movie, Lovely and Amazing. And that whole Isn't cast that 2001? is Is it? I'm pretty sure I that's 2001. Let me look it up. Because if it was 2002, it would be all over my ballot. Oh, no, it was a 2001 festival movie, and it was released uh, in theaters in 2002. I will need to uh, revise my list. Yeah, adjust, because Emily Mortimer's great in that movie, Catherine Keener's great in that movie, Brenda Bleffen is great in that movie. Love Nicole Hollison. Indeed. I love her movies. Uh, should we do, we're, we still have our 2002 top 10s if we want to do them, and we didn't do Best Actress or Supporting Actor. 
All right, let's do it. Let's do it. All right, so let's go. Um, let's, let's, so, let's, let's, let's print. Supporting actor, always uh, the sketchiest for me. So <laughs> this is very sketchy for me because this is not a su- an exciting supporting actor year for me, and I will say I have a, a wild choice or two. <laughs> okay, so as I'm looking at this list, and you've noticed it earlier, like I was very much in the vein of I'm going to be. I'm going to allow myself to nominate actors for multiple performances, like the like the National Board of Review would always do. So, which is why Brian Cox is on my that. list because this was the like insanely good Brian Cox year. Where okay, maybe was... you're not going to call me crazy then. <laughs> okay, because it's him. Because this is the year he was in adaptation where he has that one great fantastic scene uh, where he like screams at, at, at Nicolas Cage. He's in 25th Hour, where he plays Edward Norton's father, and he's so incredibly good in that. And he's in The Ring, where we've talked about how much I love him saying, my wife wasn't supposed to have a child at uh, at Naomi Watts in that. Okay, so he's one of them. Chris Cooper for Adaptation, who wins it that year, and he's great. Paul Newman was nominated for Road to Perdition. I think he's fantastic. Christopher Walken was nominated for Catch Me If You Can. I think he's fantastic. And my beloved, who did not get the attention that I thought he deserved, Stephen Delane from The Hours, playing Leonard Wolf. So, so, so good. That train scene should have absolutely gotten him a nomination. Our ballots are very, very similar. I have Chris Cooper, Brian Cox, Stephen Delane, Alfred Molina for Frida, sure. and Christopher Walken. Did Molina get, like, a SAG nomination or something? He got, like, yes, I, SAG. He was very, very close. Um, it what do you have, have? It might have been nominated for the Globe too. I forget. I don't think it was the Globe, but because I think the Globe was. Um... All right. Well, now I'm going to look that up. Give me half a second because I'm going to bug me. Um... Golden Globe Awards. Golden Globe nominations that year were Chris Cooper. Ed Harris, Paul Newman, John C. Riley, who were all Oscar nominated. And then it wasn't Christopher Walken who did get the uh, Oscar nomination. It was Dennis Quaid, who was the big Oscar nomination snub for Far From Heaven. Like that was. In the times of rewatching that movie recently, I think Dennis Quaid is terrible in that movie. I think you've mentioned this before. I think He's you mentioned bad. this before. I haven't. I haven't seen Far From Heaven in quite a long time. I I owe myself a rewatch of that. But um, that's interesting. But but regardless, people thought he was a shoe in for that movie, right. and it was. I remember being incredibly shocked. And so then SAG that year must have been O two SAG was Cooper Harris Quaid. All were holdovers from the Globes. Molina does get the nomination. And then Walken actually wins it that year at the SAG for Catch Me If You Can. So That's why they didn't go for Chris Cooper, because I just remember him steamrolling. I do, too. And he did kind of like it. His win wasn't ever really in doubt, even after Walken won that uh, that SAG award. I think part of it was the SAG awards didn't exist when Walken won his Oscar for Deer Hunter. So I think that sort of played into it. Um, What do you have Brian Cox nominated for? Well, adaptation's the only... Well, I'm not nominating him for The Ring. Um, Fair. But I haven't seen Oh, because you haven't seen 25th Hour, yeah. Is this the year of L.I.E.? No, L.I.E. was the year Which I haven't seen. Yeah, L.I.E. was 2001. Um, But other contenders this year, I really loved Jim Broadbent in Gangs of New York. 
Uh, I really loved Jude Law and Road to Perdition. I really loved Robin Williams in Insomnia. I thought that performance was fantastic. Year and of this uh, Robin was, Williams being crazy. This was also the year that uh, there was a lot of conversation about, do we nominate Andy Serkis for Lord of the Rings, The Two yeah. Towers? Because the motion capture performance of Gollum was so, like, not only well-received, but like felt like a new frontier, like a real like breakthrough in terms of what was possible on screen. So that was definitely like part of the conversation. Um, one of my favorite best actor fields ever, the actual Oscars gave it to um, obviously uh, Nicole Kidman as Virginia Woolf in the hours also nominated were Julianne Moore and far from heaven, Diane Lane for unfaithful, Salma Hayek for Frida, and the SAG winner actually that year was Renee Zellweger for Chicago. And I remember people really thinking like she was going to nip that one at the last minute. And like her perform, I don't hate her performance in that movie the way a lot of people I think kind of do, but I was glad that Kidman did win. A freak for the hours am I. So what were your nominees <laughs> that year? Uh, I mean, again, this best actress year is truly like killing your darlings. <laughs> this could be a 10 wide field and you would still be leaving out incredible performances. Uh, the top of my ballot performance of the century, Isabelle Huppert in the piano teacher. Right. Followed by Nicole Kidman in The Hours, Julianne Moore in Far From Heaven, Meryl Streep in The Hours, and Maribel Vardu from Itumama Tembien. That's a good one. Verdu's on my long list. Um, I hewed a lot closer to the Oscars than I thought I remember doing. But um, it's I one had... of their best best actress lineups of my lifetime. And not with the, the caveat that I that I have not seen the Piano Teacher, so I uh, don't yell at me. Um, Julianne Moore for Far From Heaven. I have Kidman and Streep from The Hours. I think honestly, the fact that Streep didn't get nominated for the hours is understandable given the circumstances of that year, but it still annoys me because she is, it's one of my favorite performance of hers, if not maybe my favorite performance of hers. She's so great. Uh, I would have nominated Diane Lane for unfaithful. And I think I would have nominated my fifth slot sort of like flips and flops, but I think I would have nominated Catherine Keener for lovely and amazing. Uh, she might be uh, close to my list. She might overtake Kidman on this list had I uh, not misremembered it as a 2001 movie. It's one of those things where it's like, it's she's very good specifically in that movie, but also like she just, her Hall of Scener partnership is so wonderful to me and feels so right it's just like it i always feel like i mean i'm i'm doing the right thing with my life when i'm watching a hall of center movie with katherine keener in it it's uh great <laughs> all right what's your top 10 for that year all right my top 10 let's go from 10 to 1 shall we okay uh my number 10 about a boy what a lovely movie what a great movie great movie number nine chicago number eight solaris Number seven, Punch Drunk Love. Number six, Far From Heaven. My top five, uh, Pedro Almodovar's Talk to Her. Number four, The Hours. Number three, Adaptation. Number two, E Tu Mama Tambien. And number one, The Piano Teacher. That's a fantastic list. Like, what a great... Sorry. Is that... O2 is a great year. It's a fantastic year. All right. Um, let me bring mine up in a second. Okay. 
So, um, I've got some good runners up too. My runners up that year, uh, among others, about a boy, Road to Perdition, Signs, I really loved for as much as like, it's amazing to me how much I can love a movie that stars Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix. Catch me on the right day, and I will say that Signs is Shyamalan's best movie. You catch me on the right day, I would probably say the same, although I do love The Sixth Sense. All right, so my top 10. Um, and I will say I moved Solaris into this top 10 after this viewing. Like, I, I really, my esteem for that movie has really, really gone up. So mine is number 10, Itumama Tambien, number 9, Solaris, number 8, Far From Heaven, number 7, Spirited Away, which we haven't talked about because uh, obviously no acting uh, can Talk there. about uh, someone in trouble for not seeing something. I still haven't seen Spirited Away. Oh, I think you would love it. I, I genuinely I feel like it. that feels like a Chris File uh, kind of movie. Number six, Chicago. Number five, Adaptation. Number four, Minority Report. Number three, 25th Hour. Number two, Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. I am the one who thinks it's really good. I know a lot of people thought that that uh, trilogy sagged in the middle. I did not. As you can tell from my ballad, I am the one who could give a shit. Yeah, you hate the Lord of the Rings movies. Um, obviously, my number one is The Hours. It's my favorite movie of all time. Um... It's a good year. It's a really, really good year. And also has some, like, that's one of those years where I always feel like I judge how good a movie year is on, like, two criteria. One is, like, how good it is at the top. But, like, another one is how interesting it is at the bottom or, like, in the middle. Whereas, like, Panic Room is this year. And um, Panic Room is the underrated David Fincher movie. Panic Room rules. Yep secretary is this year i mentioned signs um we should talk about moonlight mile one of these times i feel like i find that movie really underrated igby goes down is this year um what else is i'm sort of like playing through the born identity is this year which like really sort of sets uh you know a standard with that series people forget that that the making of that movie was a complete and utter disaster Oh, and yeah. it was like a box office disappointment until it was popular from rentals on VHS. And that that popularity in rentals essentially like saved Matt Damon's career, which was really flailing at that point. Um, Frailty is that year. One of my favorite uh, underrated creepy ass movies. It's so good. Bowling for Columbine is that year. One Hour Photo we've talked about on this podcast before. The Good Girl is that year. Um, the Mothman Prophecies, which is maybe not like a capital G great movie, but I always think about it as a, as something real creepy. It's a good year. It's a real good year. All right. Do you have any other final notes on Solaris? Oh, um, I don't believe I do. Clooney Butt, Truman Show, Horror Movie <laughs> Beginning... Jeremy Davies, Inception. Yeah, those are my big ones. Yeah. Uh, I guess the only last note is Clooney is returning to space, sort of, with his Netflix movie coming out, The Midnight Sky. Right, right, right. So it's a space trilogy. It's Solaris and Gravity, and, uh, and now this. Yeah. Let's move on to the IMDb game. Yeah, do you want to talk about what the IMDb game is? 
Yeah. Uh, every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other with an actor or actress to try to guess the top four titles that IMDb says they are most known for. If any of those titles are television or voiceover work, we'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the remaining titles release years as a clue. And if that's not enough, it just becomes a free for all of hints. Very good. We love our IMDb game. Would you, Christopher, like to give or guess first? I think I want to give first. Let's get it. Let's hear it. So uh, you just mentioned Gravity, uh, Clooney's other space movie, which uh, uh, he does not have a dead wife. He eventually becomes the dead wife because he (laughs) dies. Uh, But his co-star in that one, his uh, space lady is not Natasha McClone. It is Sandy Bullock. And we've never done Sandy Bullock. Sandra Bullock. Okay. Well, see, this is the thing, is obviously to me, the big early Sandra Bullock movie is Speed, but I don't think I can trust that IMDb has that there. So I'm going to put a pin in that. I'm going to say, honestly, I think the biggest slam dunk is Miss Congeniality. Miss Congeniality. Okay. All right. Spectacular movie. I think Gravity will be one of them. Gravity, yes. Hugely popular. Best Actress nomination. I think probably The Blind Side. No. Oh, good. Good for IMDb. Okay. Yeah. All right. One straight. Fantastic. We love that. Okay. We love to not see The Blind Side. (laughs) All right. Big popular Sandy B movies. Is it Speed? Yes. Oh, good. Good. Good for them. Okay. And is it While You Were Sleeping? No, unfortunately not. Uh, one of my favorite Christmas films while you were yes. sleeping. Uh, so you get your year. Your year is 2009. 2009? Oh, is it um, <laughs> The Proposal? It's The Proposal. The Wild. Proposal is on there over the blind side, which is Wild. right. Like, I, I like The Proposal. <laughs> I like The Proposal, too. But I think there was a little strain that year of like, you know, her better movie is The Proposal. And it's like, let's not go crazy here. Like, well, people forget that The Proposal is part of the reason yeah. that her narrative built. Because before The Blind Side, The Proposal was her highest grossing movie. Right. It and was this big kind of. The Blind kind Side of... went and beat that. Yeah, it was this big kind of, like, comeback narrative uh, for her, where, like, it wasn't like her career was dead, but it was this, like, uh, there was a little bit of, like, uptick in the uh, in the Sandy B narrative. All right. Indeed. You are for me? All right. So, Steven Soderbergh's first big movie, we didn't really talk about it this time, was Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which was, like, hugely influential indie cinema, put him on the ma- on the map, all that sort of good stuff. We've already done uh, Andy McDowell, and I think Laura Sanjacomo is probably a little too obscure, although now I'm curious to see what hers would be. But the one I am going to give you is Mr. Peter Gallagher. Peter... Gallagher. Okay, one, so the question one is... One television, no voiceover. Mm, one television, it's gotta be the OC. It is indeed the OC, Sandy Cohen on the OC. And a voiceover. No, no voiceover. Oh, I thought you said a voiceover. Okay, okay, okay. Um, I'm gonna guess that Sex, Lies, and Videotape is not on there because I definitely think of both of those actors and James Spader before I would think of Peter Gallagher in that movie. Agreed. Um, while you were sleeping, 
while you were sleeping. Very much. The aforementioned. So, yes. I adore it so much. Uh huh. So Peter Gallagher's in a lot of movies, including movies that we have covered, like Tajillion. Don't think anybody remembers Tajillion enough to put it there. Um, hmm. What are like popular movies? Well, um, wait. Um, he's like twelfth build of American Beauty, but like American Beauty is its own thing. So I'm gonna say American Beauty. American Beauty. Very good. Ah, there we go. Um, uh, center stage. That's a very good guess, but it's wrong. Ah. What action movie is he in? It's not like Independence Day, but I feel like he's in an Independence Day ripoff that I can't remember. Uh, maybe I'm crazy. Hmm. Okay, maybe I need to go with something older. It can't be, like, Shortcuts, which he's in, because, like, Shortcuts never shows up for anybody. Um, Maybe it's another, like, he's played a bunch of dads. Trying to just, like, think of a movie. I may just throw this out there to get the year. Um, Um... He's in Palm Springs this year. Uh, Palm Springs. <laughs> uh, a fine guess, but no. So that is two strikes. So your year is 2010. Okay, 2010. I guess that kind of helps. This is post-OC. Yep. Um, mm. I'm trying to think of what it could be. Uh... Is this like a Sundance movie? Oh, no. No, it's not. Oh, okay. oh, so it's a big movie. Well, yes. I mean, I don't think it was like a blockbuster, but uh, yes. I will uh, say... So it's a studio movie. Yes, it's a studio movie. What were you going to say? I will say what? Um. Now I want to look up what studio it was, because it might be a... Uh, sorry, one second. USA Theatrical. Yes, it is a studio movie. Okay. Um, okay. Uh, we've done this on our podcast before. Oh, oh. Um, is it burlesque? It's burlesque. Sure burlesque. is burlesque. Plays Cher's ex-husband. Um, Barely in the movie. He is, but you know what? It's such a good movie that it doesn't matter. Yeah. Hey, we both did pretty well this week. Yeah. Just pretty quickly. I'm trying to think of some other Peter Peter Gallagher ones that I might have put on there instead. He just blurs together. It's just like he's a floating set of eyebrows. I think I think Center Stage would have been a good one. He's in one of the later Step Up movies where uh, they're in Miami and he owns businesses uh, of some sort. <laughs> he's in the House on Haunted Hill uh, remake. Oh yeah, where I think I meant he's to watch the Vincent Price. Season I did not. Right? Is he the Vincent Price? No, Jeffrey Rush is the Vincent Price. Jeffrey Rush is the Vincent Price. Right. Um, He's he's, like the millionaire. He's also the lawyer who interrogates Alec Baldwin in Malice in that big uh, uh, I Am God scene that I tend to clip all the time. I got it. I've talked about it enough where I really need to just like uh, watch it when I have some free time. Yeah. I might go watch an Oceans movie today. Who knows? Joseph, 
Before yes. we go, we have one more thing, to, exciting thing to remind our listeners about. Guys, yes. keep submitting your one choice for your listener's choice submission. Again, all November, you can either email or tweet at us your choice that you want to hear on the Christmas listener's choice episode. I'm compiling all of the tallies at the beginning of the month. You, The top four options will be on our Twitter poll. Once again, you can email us at hadoscarbuzz at gmail.com or tweet at us at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Very excited to hear what uh, I'm so excited at want. this point. Like we're still uh, ahead of the curve on that, so like we haven't gotten submissions, but I'm so excited to see what everybody's uh, asking us to cover. Me too. Me too. That is our episode, though. If you want more of this head Oscar buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? Uh, you can find me uh, floating with uh, Space Ghosts on Twitter.com at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. Also, under on, also on Letterboxd under the same name. I am on Twitter at Joe Reed. Reed is spelled R-E-I-D. And I am also on Letterboxd as Joe Reed, spelled the same way. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork and Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever else you get podcasts, which now, yes, includes Spotify. We're on Spotify. Go follow us on Spotify. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcast visibility, so please make sure that you are a real person and then share Shoot some Higgs boson particles our way in the form of a nice review. That is all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more buzz. You know